Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 303, and we are recording on October 19th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot and all of our technology malfunctioning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm wearing a sweater, though, so that's fun. Oh, good. Yes. Sweaters are good. I We finally, we haven't taken the AC units out of our windows yet because we're lazy, mm. but we definitely need to do that at this point in the year. Yeah. I turned my heat on yesterday for the first time and it was like, oh, dang. it felt like a ceremony, you know, like we're turning yes. the heat on. <laughs> it's cool. Yes. The first heat. <laughs> and then that smell of burning dust yeah. of all of the <laughs> air vents get cleared. Uh, fall. <laughs> fall. Well, I guess we should also talk about books. What is this show, you ask, aside from Jen and Amanda's thoughts on fall? It is Doesn't a matter. show for <laughs> yeah, it's a show for personalized reading recommendations, which means you can send in your request for a reading recommendation, whether it's for a kind of book that you love so much and you're having trouble finding a new one. Maybe you need a recommendation for a friend or a family member, for a gift, for a book club, whatever. Send it on in. We might answer it. Uh, you can send those in either by email, getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can send it in via the form that is in the show notes for every episode over on bookriot.com. We have a couple reminders. Oh, wait, I forgot. Okay, if you have a time-sensitive request, please do put the date that you're hoping to hear back by either in the subject line of the email or the very first line of the form. We we do have our holiday shows coming up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, get your holiday recommendation requests in as early as you would like. We will collect them all and then make shows about them. <laughs> okay, now for our reminders. We do, you have till the end of October to get our fancy limited edition 10th anniversary Book Riot merchandise. If you go to bookriot.com slash merch, you can see all of your options there. We also are still accepting applications for an advertising sales manager. So if you like books and comics and you maybe have sales experience or you think you'd be good at it, you're excited about connecting advertisers with the enthusiastic books and comics lovers who read and listen to Book Riot, uh, this job might be for you. Uh, we are very much interested in getting applications from women, individuals with disabilities, people of color. We are an inclusive workforce, and we have lots of great benefits. So you can get all the details at bookriot.com slash join dash us. And the deadline for applications is October 24th. So that is coming up. Mm -hmm. Alrighty, we've got some feedback Not as Jen. well. <laughs> I know. Our delightful sound editor, Jen Zink, was like, oh, oh, I know a book about a black woman and an orchard. So Sanctuary by Rebecca Weatherspoon. It's the precursor to Zenny, which takes place at the same orchard. But Sanctuary apparently literally has a date in an apple orchard and wow. it's the coziest thing ever. So that sounds go. perfect. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, and then Carol has a recommendation for the listener who has fallen in love with California nature. Check out the California Field Guide by author slash illustrator Obi Kaufman. Beautifully rendered watercolors, text about the flowers, forests, oceans, and grasses in California. That sounds nice. Carol also recommends for Isabel, who wanted recommendations about, oh, couples and partners who are both authors. Uh, Carol recommends Michael Shaban and Ayelet Waldman. He is best known for Cavalier and Clay, but Yiddish Policeman's Union is a favorite. She writes fiction. Her most recent book is Love and Trevor. Ooh, Love and Treasure. <laughs> Carol says, you also can't go wrong with Dave Eggers and Vendela Levita. All right. And then Nicole for Stephanie from episode 298, who enjoyed Talia Hibbert's The Brown Sister series and Lissa K. Adams' Bromance series. I really like the Rajay series by Sonali Dev, the Friend Zone series by Abby Jimenez, and the Modern Love series by Alicia Rai. I will co-sign all of those mm-hmm. series personally. And then also from Nicole for Leslie from episode 299, who is looking for outdoorsy and nature books, I recommend A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson and The Hour of Land by Terry Tempest Williams. Woo. Good job, everybody. Lots of feedback. <laughs> All right, Amanda, you want to read our first question? Sure. Okay, our first question is from Rebecca, who says, I love to celebrate Halloween throughout all of October, and over the last few years, I've done a deep dive into older horror classics like Dracula, Frankenstein, etc. I also enjoy watching the movie adaptations of these novels. For this year's read, I'm coming up short because despite my penchant for all things spooky, I'm kind of a scaredy cat. I tend to like Halloween reads that are more atmospheric and suspenseful rather than gross-out horror. Do you have any suggestions, bonus points, if there is a movie adaptation? All right, well, before we get into that, first sponsor... Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. At She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. 
it kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Kalyan Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Horror movies that aren't scary. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep going. So Rebecca wants horror classics that are on the spookier side as opposed to the scary side. And I went with Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, your namesake, um, which is a classic of, I don't even think, I wouldn't say horror. It's like a classic Mm. of atmospheric creepiness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it has two movie adaptations that you can watch. The first one is Alfred Hitchcock directed it. Lawrence Olivier is in it. And then the second one is more recent. Army Hammer is in it. It's a Netflix special and it sucks. It's awful. So do not watch. (laughs) If you're going to watch an adaptation, you of course need to watch the Hitchcock version. The new version is garbage. Belongs in the garbage. Not even the recycling. In the garbage. Okay. So (laughs) Rebecca, the novel and the movies are about a nameless young woman. You never find out her name who is pretty broke. And she's working as like a ladies companion. This is like the 30s. In Monte Carlo for this very wealthy woman. So she just like travels around with her and is kind of her maid slash butler slash plays cards with her when she's bored, that sort of thing. While she's on this trip, she meets a man named Maxim de Winter, which is the best name in fiction, (laughs) like just the best name in fiction. And Maxim is a very wealthy, uh, recently widowed man who owns a just beautiful, dreamy, giant estate called Manderley in the UK. And she, he is much older than her, and which is not emphasized in the second movie, part of the reason why it's garbage. And they strike up like a relationship. And he eventually asks her to marry him, which she agrees to do, all behind the back of this woman she's working for. So she tells the woman, I am marrying this very wealthy older man who is very far out of my league. And the older woman is like, wow, that's... That's not going to go well, uh, which is just <laughs> foreshadowing for the whole thing. So then she she marries him. She goes to Manderley, this giant um, house, and immediately meets the, the housekeeper, who is the, one of the scariest villains ever, and realizes that Maxim's first wife, Rebecca, was this beautiful, glamorous, very competent socialite who everyone loved, but who also everyone maybe a little bit hated and nobody can figure out why, you know? And so she's like this mysterious, she haunts, maybe literally, but definitely figuratively, the whole house, the whole staff, her husband. And so she has found herself in this situation, living in a perhaps giant haunted house, haunted by the ghost of the woman who she will never live up to because she's this like poor little church mouse, 20-year-old who has found herself in this world that she doesn't know what to do with. Um, And so things kind of spiral out of control from there. So there's a supernatural question mark element. Like, is this a super, is, is she being literally haunted? And also like, what happened to her? It said that she died in a boating accident, but did she do it on purpose or was she murdered or like what? Because she was a competent sailor. So it's a big mystery, very autumnal, I think. So that's Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Watch the Hitchcock version. Okay. (laughs) Amanda's feelings about Rebecca. It's so bad. The second movie could be a whole podcast. (laughs) That's a a bummer. Yeah. All right. Well, this is not exactly what you're looking for, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) You referenced a lot of like oldie time classics. I am giving you what I consider a modern classic. It's Hocus Pocus. This show would not be complete on a yearly basis without me mentioning Hocus (laughs) Pocus. 
And it is a backwards adaptation situation. The amazing Bette Midler, Kathy and Jimmy, Sarah Jessica Parker, Thora Birch version of the movie was first. And then not too long ago, they did a novelization plus sequel called, wait for it, Hocus Pocus and the all-new sequel by A.W. Chantha. It's a terrible title for a really fun book. I will say that the book is half the novelization of the movie, and then the second half is the sequel. And it is a fun experiment if you are as big of a fan of the original movie as I am to read the novelization because there's all kinds of like extra tidbits about the Sanderson sisters and, you know, the main characters um, and, you know, how they like all of the background that you're just not going to get in a campy, rompy, like made for children, witch movie. But they put it in the novelization. But then the sequel is such a delight. Uh, so the plot of Hocus Pocus, like I need to tell you, <laughs> is that it takes place in uh, Salem, Massachusetts. The main character, Max, is from California. He does not into all of the like, woo, witchy, like whatever culture that Salem has going on. But there's a cute girl in his class who's into it. And so he's trying to impress her. So they light a candle in an old witch cottage and summon three witches back from hell. <laughs> Hijinks ensue. And the sequel takes place 25 years later. Their 17-year-old daughter, Poppy, obviously is like, well, there's something weird about my parents because they actually believe in witches. And I'm like, I love them. But also, <laughs> are you for real? Like, mom and dad, like, come on, this isn't real. And of course, she finds out the hard way that it is. It's got a beautiful queer relationship. There's a great supporting cast of characters. There's a little bit of like a frenemies to lovers bit. And it's just like rompy. I mean, it is not scary. It's just fun. Mm. It's just it's atmospheric fun, fun, fun. And there is nothing more delightful to me during the month of October than to watch Bette Midler chew the scenery in that movie. Yes. Like, I literally have on my calendar my scheduled rewatch coming up this weekend. So <laughs> if you would like to enjoy that, again, that's Hocus Pocus and the all-new <laughs> sequel by A.W. Jantha. Not sorry. All right. <laughs> Our next question is from Stephanie, who says, okay, this is a long, I'm going to do some truncating and summing up. Uh, Stephanie says, I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit that until recently, I really didn't pay much attention to the discourse on patriarchy, feminism, etc. Somehow I thought it just wasn't relevant for me. However, over the last year, I have started to become aware of my own internalized misogyny and how much of my inner critical dialogue and limiting beliefs are rooted in the patriarchal system. This has been transformative and empowering for me and has helped me to understand that my historical cycles of depression and burnout have been driven by holding myself to masculine ideals and seeking approval from a patriarchal system. I'm looking for books that throw a light on how the patriarchal system affects both men and women on an individual level, and some thoughts on how to navigate or unsubscribe from these entrenched narratives. I'm more interested in books that speak to transformation and awakening on an individual level rather than books focused on more complex sociopolitical theory and analysis. I'm also more interested in books that take a personal growth approach rather than simply rage against the machine. Fiction or nonfiction would be welcome. I've read and loved Glennon Doyle's Untamed as well as Burnout by the Nagoski Twins. Woo. All right, Amanda, what you got? I picked Drop the Ball by Tiffany Dufu, which we read as a company, so that might mm -hmm. seem like kind of a strange pick for this question. But I really think this is one of the more feminist, like, self-help kind of books 
in existence because it's very much about the day-to-day life of being a woman in like a capitalist Western society. Um, so this is, you know, I mean, it's an individual story. Uh, Tiffany it was, is, I don't know what she's doing these days, a really like high-powered executive. And then she got married. She had a child and began to feel that kind of very familiar feeling that like she could not handle all of the things that one has to do when one is a person working a full-time job and also a mother and a, you know, spouse and all of that. Because... It is just true that women still do as much housework as they did 40 years ago by the hour, even though we are also working full-time jobs. So in reality, most working women have two jobs, right? Like you take care of your house, you care for your child, and then you also have to uh, do your actual job at your job. And so like, what what to do? And the whole premise of this is like, not not all of it. Like the idea that women feel as though we have to do all of those things is internalized toxic mask. Like it's internalized patriarchy. This idea that we are one, both responsible for all those things. We are not. And two, that we have to do them perfectly. We do not. And so she rocks you through a bunch of exercises about dropping the ball, which is leaning on your partner. And then if your partner doesn't do it the right, quote unquote, right way to you, you have to learn to not care. Or if your partner forgets to do it, it just doesn't get done. And that's fine. So it's very like that you learning to accept that we as women do not have to care more about things around the house or do more around the house than men do. We just don't. And if it doesn't get done, it doesn't get done. And it feels a little bit, it's it reminding me a little bit of some like parenting books I'd read that were like, right. natural consequences, honey. Like if your kid forgets to do the thing, he doesn't get the thing. That's just it, right. you know? Uh, and that's kind of what she's saying here. And it is like kind of, it's very gender binary-ish. It is a lot about women dealing with men. But even if you are not in a heteronormative relationship in that way, we read it for work. And I think it super applies to things at work. Well, I've noticed this, that women, even in our company, which is a very forward-thinking, progressive, liberal space, women tend to volunteer to take notes on calls more often than men do. Uh, women t- volunteer to organize systems more often than the men do. And it's partially a function of we have more women on staff than men. But also, it's just this internalized thing that we feel... We have to volunteer for almost reflexively because we don't even think about it because it's just how we've been conditioned. So it is a real like close to the bone, down to the earth, down to earth, the reality of your everyday life examination of personal internalized patriarchal stuff and what that looks like as far as meal planning and doing your dishes, like the stuff that we all have to do no matter what. So that is Drop the Ball by Tiffany Dufu. Yeah, I love that book, too, for Men, because Mm -hmm. I also think that a lot of them do not understand how ingrained that mindset is into the women in their lives, Mm -hmm. be they like, you know, romantic partners or siblings or relatives or whatever. Like, I think it's a real eye opener for guys who be like, oh, that's what you're carrying around in your head all the time. And that's why it freaks you out when the dishes don't get done. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. now I understand a little bit better. Like, it's I think it's a very good like, here's what this is like inside of my brain. (laughs) So that's good. Uh, I picked Brave Not Perfect by Reshma Sajani. With a couple of caveats. So you you mentioned you have cycles of uh, depression and burnout and that you were looking for like individual transformation rather than, you know, social, political zoom out stuff. And I think Brave Not Perfect is great for this question in a lot of ways, because what Sujani is looking at is this paradigm in which she is looking at how women and girls are encouraged from a very young age 
to do a thing perfectly. And if they don't get it exactly right, then they are discouraged from continuing to do it. And that means that in particular, they don't end up in STEM fields. So Johnny is particular. She's in tech. So she's saying, like, you know, you're going to make mistakes in coding, as a for example. But the girls, once they realize that, like, they're not going to do it perfectly the first time or maybe the second, they quit at much higher rates than the boys do. And part of that is because we have this messaging to girls that, like, you have to be careful. You have to do it right. Like, get it right. You know, don't, like, take risks. Don't step outside of the lines. Like, keep yourself safe. And boys are historically encouraged more to, like, go take chances, skin your knees, like, it doesn't have to be perfect, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I think that is both very true. The caveat for this book is that she doesn't then take it a step further and look at the impact of that brave messaging on boys and men in terms of toxic masculinity. But I think... If you think about it for half a second, it's very clear how pushing too hard for boys and men to be, quote unquote, brave Mm. uh, has its own negative consequences that, of course, we don't want to replicate with women and girls. But what I do love about this book is that Sajani uh, has like literal exercises in the back of the book for getting over the feeling of like, I can't take a risk because people will blame me for my mistakes and maybe I'll lose my job or like this relationship or whatever, like getting over that paralyzing fear of not doing well enough. And in my own experience of anxiety and burnout and depression, it is so often bound up with being terrified that I'm not doing things well enough Mm. and that that will mean that everybody will be mad at me or I will lose things or whatever. And this book is very good at deconstructing those narratives. So if those narratives are something, Stephanie, that you particularly are struggling with, I think this will this can help a lot and also give you just some good food for thought about all of these messages that we are giving to boys and girls and the different ways that those show up in our lives. So, again, that's Brave Not Perfect by Reshma Sujani. All right. Question three is from Mandy, who says, I'm getting in my Christmas request early. I need a recommendation for my boyfriend. Books and book recs have been a cornerstone of our relationship from the beginning. Our first date was at a bookstore, and we talk about books and recommend them to each other incessantly. He loves golden age murder mysteries, historical fiction and fantasy, and also weird fiction like some of the more modern takes on Lovecraft. Political intrigue can also be a winner. Things that didn't work for him, Poppy War, Getting the Ninth, Devil in the Dark Water. He's loved everything I've recommended to him so far, and I'm feeling the pressure for Christmas already. Can you help? He and his family are going on a Christmas trip to Austria, so bonus points if you can work that in, but majorly not critical. Also, if you could avoid cancer and parental death, that'd be great. So TLDR, if anyone can find me a historical fantasy murder mystery with Lovecraftian elements and political intrigue set in Austria, winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> okay, um, so I did not get all of those things. <laughs> no, I, The set in Austria part especially was, was hard to... Uh, Hard to find, but I got The Conductors by Nicole Glover, which comes with a trigger warning for slavery. This is the first book in the Murder and Magic series, which is a new series. I don't think book number two has come out, Um, but the first one's pretty hefty. It's over 400 pages, so I think that's plenty of, you know, material for an international trip. So this one does have historical fantasy murder mystery. There are no Lovecraftian elements, but it is heavily about race, which I think a lot of the new takes on Lovecraft are really grappling with because Lovecraft was a terrible racist. And so that's the thing to grapple with if you're doing Lovecraft. So this is about a woman named Hetty who was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And this is a uh, fantasy novel. So it takes place in Philadelphia in in an all-black neighborhood 
composed entirely of people who have escaped slavery and they are most of them some most of them have some kind of magical ability but the the laws of the country are such that black people are not allowed to practice any kind of magical ability they had to wear collars that like delivered a physical punishment if they ever tried to practice their magical abilities white people do have some kind of like sorcery based magic but it's not as strong um, or as earthy or as powerful. And so Hetty is, again, the main character. She was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And now her and her husband, Benji, live in Philadelphia. They have a really interesting marriage. It's totally platonic. But so they like are best friends and definitely life partners, but married each other for conveniences and social stuff and like to make their lives easier in a lot of really practical ways. And so their relationship evolves in really interesting ways over the course of the book, but that's a subplot. Anyway, so they live in Philadelphia and they solve murders. Like that's what they do. Murders in their neighborhood that the white authorities don't care about. And they use their magical abilities to do so. He is also a blacksmith, I think, and she works as a tailor uh, making dr- or a dressmaker. And they're both really talented at that. And so they find when the book opens, they find a body in an alley. And it turns out to be one of their friends. And so they take on this case to find out who has murdered their friend in a really supernatural kind of way, like he's been branded with this like witchy kind of mark. And then when they go off to solve this, it, it really involves them in a lot of local political intrigue and also in their circle of friends, most of whom came with them up out of slavery on the Underground Railroad. And so they have to kind of investigate all these people who they've built an entire community with in order to solve this murder. And like I said, their personal relationship between the two of them evolves. The magic system is, system is really fascinating. The, the actual murder mystery has like plots on plots on plots. So it'll really it keeps you very engaged. And yeah, I really look forward to the next book. So that's The Conductors by Nicole Glover. All right. I, yes, I have (laughs) Lovecraftian modern for you. (laughs) And it is a two book series. Both books are out currently. So that is helpful for uh, needing longer reads for traveling. My pick is Beneath the Rising by Premi Muhammad. And I will give content warnings for violent harm to children and like, you know, body horror and internalized racism because Lovecraft and horror. But this is such... Oh, I love this book. It's about two... I guess they're like teenagers. Nick and Johnny. Uh, Johnny is a nickname for Joanna. And they have been friends since they were very young. They shared a... They survived a traumatic experience together and have been sort of bound together by that ever since. Nick is like, you know, lower class, biracial not like particularly talented in any one way, just living a very ordinary life, has a job at a fast food, you know, restaurant uh, to help meet ends meet, etc. But Johnny is a genius. She's like a literal genius. She's traveling the world. She's solving all of these huge problems and inventing things constantly that like are going to fix everything forever, etc, etc. And they don't see each other very often, but when they do, it's like nothing has changed. They're still incredibly bound together in this friendship. So Johnny comes back to visit, and when Nick goes to see her, she has invented this, like, reactor that is going to supply clean energy and incredibly efficient rates and, like, eliminate fossil fuels and change the world, et cetera, et cetera. Like, she's fixed everything forever. Huzzah! Except turns out that her invention actually, like, monkeys with... Not just the laws of physics, but like supernatural Mm -hmm. things start chasing them. And so Nick is sucked into this like international escapade trying to figure out like why are there monsters coming after them? 
What can they do about it? And it is extremely horrifying in certain moments. I mean, as you all know, I am a scaredy cat. I made it through. They're not like so bad that I had to put it down, but it was right on the edge. They're pretty Mm. intense. And oh man, the relationship between these two is that like that beautiful, complex, nuanced, like sometimes I really hate you, but Mm. also you are my best friend and I love you. And like, so I have to be here, but oh my God, I'm going to like... If these things don't murder us, I'm going to murder you. Like, that kind of complicated friendship is so beautifully portrayed here. I love it so much. And the journey that Nick goes on, you're in Nick's head the whole time. And the journey that Nick goes on, he's lived, like, a very sheltered, not sheltered, but, like, a very local life. And to be thrust in this into this, like, huge global situation, like, really challenges some of the things he thinks he knows about himself and other people. And watching him grow is a delight. And, like... Oh, the ending is perfect. I can't wait to read the second one. It's out now. Um, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But I think this will definitely scratch the itches uh, that your partner has for, for what he's looking for in a book. So again, that's Beneath the Rising by Premi Mohammed. All right. Our next question is from Bray. Who oh who sent us dog pictures uh-huh. which were a delight we always we do not require them but we super appreciate them we accept bribes in all forms of dog photos no I'm just kidding that's right <laughs> we we love the fur babies so Bray says I'm looking for some fall vibes books that combine my favorite book themes with my favorite not scary Halloween movie vibes I read cross genre but my favorite themes never change they are found family queer romance diverse characters and or cultural perspectives that differ from my own as a queer, white, cis woman, American. Uh, Adventure of some sort, lots of cinnamon roll characters. Books I've loved with most of these themes are The Starless Sea, The House on the Cerulean Sea, Howl's Moving Castle, Girl from the Sea, and the Brown Sister series. Accidental sea theme. (laughs) Uh, My favorite Halloween movies are Hocus Pocus, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Casper, Halloween Town, and The Little Vampire. Books I've enjoyed that almost but not quite hit the mark are The Discovery of Witches, The Once and Future Witches, and Every Hearted Doorway. One book that was exactly what I wanted was Sedentary Boys, which I plan on rereading ASAP. Mm-hmm. Amanda, what do you have mm. for this? I went with The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow, which has Every Heart of Doorway vibes, but like it feels a little Every Heart of Doorway meets Howl's Moving Castle-ish a little bit, and that mm. like little kid goes on an adventure. So January, the titular January, is the main character, and she's a young girl when the book opens. I think she's like seven or eight. And she is the ward of a man named Mr. Locke, who is super wealthy. Um, and this feels very like early 1900s kind of era. And her father is an employee of Mr. Locke. Her father goes, travels the world, bringing in rare artifacts and elements from other cultures to Mr. Locke, who is a collector of these sorts of things. In a really like white man's burden kind of way is the is what this character is like. Mr. Locke is like that. Like he wants to learn about the, you know, exotic savages kind of thing. Like that's very much his vibe. And I'm pretty sure like a direct quote from the book. January and her father are people of color. I don't think it's exactly named what their ethnicity is in the book, but it's hinted at that they're Samoan or perhaps some kind of Pacific Islander. And so she as you could probably guess, has a really uncomfortable childhood in the home of Mr. Locke being like the oddity, the the one brown person within a hundred miles. And so her her, you know, existence is like 
very weird and uncomfortable. Um, and then one day when they're out traveling, she finds a door in the middle of a field that is attached to nothing. It just is standing, freestanding. She goes through it and enters into another world, this like ocean world with a bunch of islands. It's very magical. Also super scary because, oh my God, I just found a door to another world. What the heck? And so she retreats quite swiftly and gets like yelled at for having run off or whatever. Um, but that memory kind of stays with her. Nobody believes her because of course not. And that memory stays with her as she grows to be a teenager in the in this home with this really uncomfortable situation. And her father sometimes comes home, sometimes doesn't, and then eventually goes missing altogether and is not heard from for several, several years. He sends a woman that he meets on his travels back to the home to kind of care for January. So there's a buffer between her and Mr. Locke. Um, and that character is very much a cinnamon roll. So is January. There is also a large and unruly monster of a dog that's like her sidekick who is amazing and bites all the racists. <laughs> which I just love Um, and then one day she finds a book uh, hidden in a a cupboard in her home or no it's in a trunk in her home that leads her to all of these other doors there might be 10,000 of them if you can guess because it's in the title and so she goes on these like various and sundry adventures it's got a lot of like witchy supernaturally kind of vibes Um, not hocus pocus level but I think appropriate for not spooky fall Halloween kind of kind of thing so that's the 10,000 doors of January by Alex E. Harrow I am so excited for this question because it lets me recommend one of my absolute new favorite books from this year, which is Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. I will say this is like, you know, I mean, they compared it to Good Omens and Becky Chambers. I think it does have a lot of that, like, a little campy hocus pocus energy. (laughs) But also it is reckoning with trauma in a way that I think those others do not. So Related to that, this comes with content warnings for sexual assault, child abuse, transphobia, and racism. It is really, oh, it's really beautiful how those experiences of our main characters are dealt with. So Shizuka Satomi is this woman who has this reputation as being like the preeminent violinist teacher she like will select a protege and then they will become like the most talented violinist in the world like literally in the world and then something bad happens to them and the rumor is that she made a deal with the devil hmm. right like you do <laughs> <Just> on a <laughs> in Saturday. A world of you know classical music and everybody is buzzing about this because she appears to be searching for her next student and You know, everybody wants their kid to like, they're like, oh, you know, they joke about the deal with the devil, but they're like, no, no, I'm like, my child will achieve fame and fortune and greatness if they are her protege. So like, that's fine. We don't care about this other thing. And then we have Katrina Nguyen, who is a young transgender woman who has run away from an abusive household and is living like a very not great existence, Um, thought she had found safe people to stay with. Turns out not so much. But she has some natural talent for the violin. And Shizuka happens to overhear her playing in a park. And so Shizuka is like, I have found my protege. Now, there actually is a deal with the devil. So you're reckoning with like, 
is she going to do this? Like, is she going to take in this runaway and then use her in this way? And then in the meanwhile, there is a donut shop run by aliens. (laughs) It's amazing. I, like, don't want to tell you anything else about this book because the journey that you go on is so incredible. It is such a great journey. It is so delightful. It is so heartbreaking in certain moments. All of the characters are so well done. And it has, like, actual family, found family, queer love and family. It has, I mean, like I said, donuts. And it all takes place in the San Gabriel Valley. And you really are immersed in this Asian American slash Asian immigrant community there in such an like a it's like a visceral way. Like you really do feel like you're there. And it is it is just an absolute delight and also like a real heartbreaker in the best possible way. So I think, uh, you know, you mentioned Cemetery Boys. Like, I think this is right in line with that as well. Again, that's Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. And it's time for another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, our next question is from M, who says, My library hold for John Green's The Anthropocene Reviewed coincided with a time in my life where I've been thinking a lot about empathy. As a millennial raised on Tumblr, I really appreciated going back to Green's familiar, nervous, and overthought way of looking at things that, for better or worse, shaped the way I also have come to view the world. Similarly, David Sedaris came to mind. What I'm looking for is an audiobook, preferably read by the author, with the energy of a neurotic 30 to 50 year old. 
I love this so much. With the yeah. energy of a neurotic 30 to 50-year-old overanalyzing small things, preferably while making all the nichest references possible from writers who look more like me, a queer, black, immigrant, Latina. I'm a voracious reader and would really appreciate some deep pulls or smaller voices you think don't get enough hype. Other authors whose vibes I also loved were Samantha Irby, Ali Wong, Jesse Klein, Hannah Templer, Kat Lay, and Noelle Stevenson. Okay. I went with The Awkward Thoughts of W. Camus Bell, which is by, obviously, W. Camus Bell. And I'm going to just give you this the subtitle. Tales of a six-foot-four African-American heterosexual cisgender left-leaning asthmatic black and proud blurred mama's boy dad and stand-up comedian. That's the subtitle. <laughs> so if you're looking for like a millennial who overthinks things, I think that this is probably <laughs> right up your alley. I read the uh, Roxane Gay review of this book and uh, she called it part memoir, part riffs on Bell's interests, which is a very John Green kind of thing to do. But I feel like this is a more David Sedaris because Sedaris gets all of his, not all, but a lot of his humor from his per- stories from his personal life, his like kind of wackadoodle childhood and his times living abroad and his personal relationships and all of that. And Bell is doing the exact same thing here. So he's telling a lot of really funny stories about his parents. They got divorced when he was quite young, but he's close to both of them. And they are both they were both like very there for him and good parents and all of that. So he's got a lot of stories about that, a lot of stories about being black and nerdy before that was like a cool internet thing, um, which if you are, as you say, a millennial raised on Tumblr, you will be familiar with that. And lots of other just like being a comedian and how he doesn't fit in with the white comedians. He also doesn't fit in with the black comedians, having an interracial marriage, all the kind of non sequiturs from his personal life that he just takes and runs with in these really hilarious kind of neurotic millennial way which he absolutely owns and is like leaning into and it's very satisfying so that's the awkward thoughts of w camu bell yeah i too love this question (laughs) it speaks to me on a personal level also i just like i literally have been sitting here while amanda talked trying to decide which of these two books i'm gonna talk about (laughs) i'm gonna go with my first pick and just shout out my second so my shout out goes to hola papi by john paul brammer which is like queer latinx advice column style slash personal essay like it's very he's so funny and so sharp uh and i get his newsletter and it is like always a delight to get in my inbox so you're gonna want to check that out but okay the book i'm gonna 100 talk about now is the ugly cry by danielle henderson which is read by her. I double-checked the audiobook. And this does come with content warnings for child abuse and drug use. She is telling the story of growing up in mostly with her grandparents, but also sometimes with her mother, who was in and out of relationships, including with a drug-addicted, abusive guy who was, like, ungreat. Like, all of the warnings. Ungreat. And Danielle, like you know, is both being really real about what that was like to be little, but also like growing up in the 80s is such a huge part of this book with all of the references you could possibly want, like very deliberate. You know, Henderson is talking here about like trying to like explain her childhood to her nieces and nephews, for example, and like how you just like would literally get kicked out of the house to not come back until dinner time. And so like you're running around the neighborhood in a feral pack of children and like what did that look like? (laughs) And, you know, she was weird. She was black. Like she was living in a mostly white neighborhood in upstate New York. So there's all of that to handle. And her grandmother is 
such a character. I can't even tell you. I mean, such a character. It is. This book is so laugh out loud funny, but also like, oh, this hurts funny slash hard. And it. I mean, it's classic Danielle Henderson. Like, I don't know what to tell you if you're familiar with her from the Internet. Like, you sort of already know what her vibe is. But if you don't, this is going to be an amazing journey for you. And yeah, it's just it is a great memoir. And I think it's exactly what you are looking for. So again, that is The Ugly Cry by Danielle Henderson. All right. Our next question is from Kat, who says, I need more hope punk. I read Becky Chambers' A Psalm for the Wild Built, and then I made a cup of tea and read it again. Yeah. Yes, that is the experience you have if you read that book. The monk and robot concept is clearly unique, so not looking for a read-alike, but something that evokes a similar feel. Bonus points for post-apocalyptic utopia and extra, extra bonus points for tea as a narrative motif. What did you pick, Amanda? I picked Game Changer by Alex Beckett. I kind of fixated on the post-apocalyptic utopia part of this question and the hope punk part, obviously. So Game Changer is like if Ready Player One were happy and not so he- <laughs> we're not so heteronormative. <laughs> so like, okay, so it takes place in the near future, far enough away in the future that like the ascendancy of technology and virtual reality and all that is complete. So we are all living in that kind of tech runs the world, very infomocracy kind of feeling. Also, the climate has collapsed and then be re- and then been rebuilt. And so humanity operates in a very different way with the environment than we do now. But it's familiar. Like we still have corporations. They're still job like kind of regular corporate jobs. There are still skyscrapers and all of that. Um, but we have refurbished everything to sustain the survival of the species. Um, and also heteronormativity is like not really a thing in this this future imagining. And so it's, af- it's after the apocalypse, obviously, humanity has figured out kind of what they want to be and what, how we want to live. Um, and into that comes the main character named Ruby. And she is a member of what in the book is called the bounce back generation. So the first people to be raised in this new world that has been rebuilt after the end of the 21st century when everything kind of fell apart. So she has only ever known this sort of post-apocalyptic utopia where everybody really values the things that society is made up of because we didn't have them before when everything fell apart. And that's kind of why everything fell apart. She works as a public defender and her job is to defend people who experience, who exhibit antisocial behavior, which in this universe looks a lot like how you behave online. So like all of that is really kind of prescient. Like this book came out in 2019, I think, before the conversations about quote unquote canceling people for like being Trump mm. supporters or whatever, we had like reached a zenith. Obviously, we were having that conversation, but it wasn't as big. And so that feels really prescient. Um, and so she meets a man named Luciano who is going to be a client of hers. And he is famous kind of in the internet, which in this universe means he's famous because they're kind of this like the same reality is the internet. Um, and he has made this name for himself for being. He feels like kind of a Joe Rogany sort of like I'm here to be provocative for funsies, except he really believes the things that he's saying, which I don't think Joe Rogan does. And so he's like this internet firebrand. He's a naysayer. He does not like the way the directions that the bounce back is going, like the ways that humanity is recovering from destruction and learning to live with each other in the environment. He doesn't like any of those things. And so he's trying to stop them all from happening. And she has to defend him as someone who like likes those things because they allow her to live. Um, and so lots of like political intrigue. It's a really fascinating world building exercise because in a lot of ways, this post-apocalyptic utopia encompasses many of the things that liberals want, like are fighting for right now. 
but with the added bonus of like humanity has almost ended and now we've decided actually those sounded like good ideas jk like we're gonna go ahead and do those things now so the expression is kind of two clicks off you know from what people are fighting for right now because the end times have already come and gone so it's fascinating anyway so that's game changer by lx beckett i could talk about that book forever (laughs) (laughs) i uh i confess mine is not the most hope punk, it's much more tea focused because I, I have also read A Song for the Wild Built and I know exactly what you mean, but I got blocked by like, it needs to have tea in it. And I was like, oh, tea. And then all I could think about was tea in books. And so here we are. So my pick for you is The Tea Master and the Detective by Aliette de Bedard, um, which does come with a content warning for descriptions of, of PTSD episodes. This is, it is futury and it is not a dystopia like not everything is bad nothing it's not that i wouldn't say it's it's definitely not a utopia so the main character is long chow who is like a sherlockian very abrasive kind of rude abrupt scholar but like also clearly a genius and then a spaceship called the shadow's child who is also an expert tea maker, because that's a thing a spaceship can be in this future, which is like hard to envision, but it it works, I promise. And Shadow's Child's specialty is making these tea mixes that allow people to go into like deep space on these long voyages and, you know, they help to fight off the effects. They also, like, Shadow's Child can also make hallucinatory teas and, like, teas that are more for healing, like, all different kinds of teas. This is their specialty. And Long Chow actually asks for their help going into deep space on this, like, you know, sort of mission that I won't talk too much about because I don't want to give too many spoilers. And it's, it is, like, it's a murder mystery, more or less. So that's, like, it's not super hope punk in that way. But the relationships are so satisfying. And you do have this human sentient AI relationship that is also oriented around tea. So in that way, it is an interesting read along, although not read alike, for a Psalm for the Wild Build. So that's what I'm doing here. So I really, I really love this novella. I love this whole novella series. It's part of the universe of Shuya that Dibadard has done a bunch of novellas in. And I recommend all of them. But again, like if you if you're interested in human AI relationship oriented around tea with a little bit less of the hope punk stuff. That's the tea master and the detective. All right. Our last question is from Aida, who says, I'm currently reading Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, and I realize that I love courtroom settings. I want a book with suspenseful courtroom atmosphere, intense back and forth between lawyers, complex characters, and a messy case. All right. I went with Miracle Creek by Angie Kim, which has trigger warnings for a lot of things, uh, graphic really hard to stomach harm to children, rape, self-harm, and suicide. So Miracle Creek is about a group of characters in a small town in Virginia, most of whom are parents of autistic children. And so it takes place in this special treatment center, which consists of a hyperbaric chamber that where the oxygen levels are changed. Uh, and it's like a kind of fringe treatment for autism and various other issues that these parents uh, who are kind of at their last rope trying to help their kids and have run out of other options have brought their kids to this hyperbaric chamber for treatment to try and see what kind of progress they can make. And it's not just kids with autism, like there's a character who is there to combat infertility issues, uh, lots of different things. There's a explosion in the chamber that kills one of the children, 
one of and the kid, the boy's mother is arrested. It's decided that based on the investigation that she set that fire on purpose because she was so overwhelmed and stressed out and could not handle parenting this child anymore. And so that's the trial. She is on trial for the murder of her son and also the death of a few other people who were in the chamber at the time. And so the courtroom scenes made me literally sweat. Like sweat came out of my body. I could not handle it. I could not handle it because I am a person who is very easily swayed by a passionate argument happening right in front of me. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Okay, well, let's do it. Awesome. Fine. I don't know. And so the back and forth between the prosecutor and the defense are presented in such passionate ways that I found myself as the reader being like, obviously, she did it. And then a chapter later, I'd be like, obviously, she didn't do it. And as a poor prosecuted mother, because of feminism, and then I would get so mad. And then I spent the whole book like mad at various characters, because I'm easily manipulated as a reader. (laughs) (laughs) But it was so skillfully done. And it's obviously a really hard read. Like the whole plot is based around this really horrible death of a child. And some, for some reason, that didn't turn me off. Like, that wouldn't... Usually, I'd be immediately put it down and be like, ah, no. But I went into the book. I, I go into most books without having read the synopsis uh, or much of it. So I don't often... I don't know what exactly is going on. We had a staff member who recommended this, our staff member who used to be an attorney, and said it was a great courtroom drama. So that's why I picked it up. And by the time I got to the scene that the courtroom drama is based around, I was so f- I was already in it. And so I just kept going. And I'm so glad that I did. It's a rough, it's such a rough read. But her ability to write lawyers and like to write this mystery, it was just, mu- it was mind blowing. It was such a great, it reminded me, it's like Blacktop Wasteland, if anybody out there has read that, where it's just, that book is just gas pedal to the floor from page one. And then you'll look up and it's been 18 hours and you've done nothing except sweat and like freak <laughs> out because of this book. So that's the kind of reading experience it is which I think is what you're after. So that's Miracle Creek by Angie Kim. I picked a more sort of classic plot, but contemporary legal thriller for you. It's Every Reasonable Doubt by Pamela Samuels Young, which was recommended by one of our contributors, Mel, because this is not this is not my area of expertise. And this is about an attorney named Vernetta Henderson, who is forced to work on the biggest case of her career with somebody she's super doesn't want to work with this other woman, Nettie McLean. And it's the murder trial of a socialite client who has been charged with the murder of her husband. And so the big like question of this book is, did she do it or did she not? But these women are these two women who are working on the case are like very at odds with each other. So you have that whole character dynamic. And then the trial does indeed get very messy and they have to figure out like all of these things that impacts their personal lives. So they have to figure out how to deal with their personal relationships on top of it. And it sounds very much like the kind of page turner legal thriller that you might enjoy. It's also the first in a series, uh, the Vernetta Henderson series. So again, that is Every Reasonable Doubt by Vernetta Henderson. And on that note from Petunia, <laughs> that is our show. I don't even know what he's barking at. I don't think he does either. <laughs> Perfect timing. All right. Thanks go out to our audio editor for removing all of our flubs and restarts and sometimes Petunia's barking as well. Thanks go out to all of you for listening for 300 plus episodes now. We super appreciate that. If you would like more book recommendations, you can find those at bookriot.com. You can also find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. 
And if you're so inclined, please leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you can leave podcast reviews. It does help other folks to find the show. Uh, Thanks to our sponsors for helping make the show possible. And in between shows, you can find us on social media. Where's Amanda? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L, or on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And I will leave you all to your hocus pocus viewings. (laughs) Talk to you next time.